0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled Transitions. We ended the previous episode with Jesus on the cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem late Friday afternoon. The Jewish leaders and the Romans thought that that was the last of the enigmatic troublemaker from Galilee. For that matter, his followers thought it was the end as well. If that had been the end of Jesus' story, how might history have labeled him? Modern skeptics, who consider the resurrection to be a mythic postscript, added by Jesus' later followers, cast Jesus as a religious and social reformer, one whose goal was to turn the stiff formalism of first-century Judaism into a more personal and intimate faith in God. Those skeptics recast the miracles attributed to Jesus as myths meant to explain the effect of his charismatic personality on others. They contend that Jesus didn't really turn a few fish and loaves into fish sandwiches for thousands. He merely used the generosity of a young boy to provoke the crowd to share with one another. He didn't really walk on water. He merely came along the shore in a low-lying mist. And he didn't really rise from the dead. His example of love for God and others merely inspired the disciples to follow his example, His memory endured, not his literal person, says the skeptic. So, was Jesus merely a reformer? Was his mission just to return Judaism to something that Moses would have given a hearty thumbs up to? While Moses would indeed endorse Jesus, he wasn't merely one of the many prophets that God sent to call people back to himself. Moses would approve of Jesus because all Moses did pointed to and prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus was the original former, not a reformer. He was the I Am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush and commissioned him to lead Israel out of bondage to the promised land. This becomes clear when we consider the words of Jesus at that last meal that he shared with his disciples. When he took the cup to inaugurate the Rite of Communion, he said something remarkable. Quote, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, unquote. Those young men sitting around that table could not mistake what Jesus meant, for it was something that had been burned into them since childhood. Jesus made the claim to the cherished promise of the prophet Jeremiah, who in chapter one said, quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more, Jesus laid claim to that promise, saying that he was its fulfillment, and what he was about to do in going to the cross would activate that new covenant. Jesus didn't come just to reform Judaism or refresh the covenant that Moses had mediated with Israel. He came to consummate That covenant and initiate a new, based not on the performance of the Mosaic Law, but on abiding faith in Him. Of course, if Jesus had remained in the tomb, He'd be nothing but a minuscule footnote to the history of the first century, if that. Just one more and a long parade of Jewish troublemakers who had a little flurry of popularity among some malcontents. Nothing of consequence would have followed. But his resurrection changed everything. It turned his timid band of followers into men of unquenchable vision and voracious determination. Only the resurrection can account for the dramatic change that took place in those who'd followed Jesus. In writing to the Corinthians some years later, the Apostle Paul said that in his post-resurrection appearances, Jesus was seen by some 500 people at one time not just the original handful of disciples. It was this critical mass of witness that made sure the news of his resurrection wasn't suppressed by the authorities. And it was the surety that Jesus had been dead, then made alive, that compelled his followers to remain faithful, even in the face of their martyrdom. So, after a brief stint back in their home region of Galilee, the disciples permanently relocated to Jerusalem. It was reasonable that the center of their movement be at the heart of the Jewish world. Though Jesus said that his followers would one day come from all over the world, those first believers had a difficult time seeing the church as anything other than fundamentally Jewish. They met as a large group in the temple courtyard where they listened to the disciples teach on the life and the words of Jesus. Because it was the way education was practiced in the first century, it didn't take long until a standard stock story developed. This oral tradition formed the core of what was used by Matthew and Mark, and to a certain degree by Luke, when they wrote their gospels. John already knew of those accounts, and chose instead to write a story of Jesus that filled in some of the details not included in the official oral tradition. After the large group had listened to the teaching by the apostles, they broke into smaller groups to gather in homes where they shared a meal, prayed, and discussed what they'd just learned. There was little organization to this early movement of Jesus' followers as they felt their way forward. Despite that lack of organization, their faith blossomed and their community was marked by a notable love, became attractive to others. Their numbers grew. They went by different labels. Some called them Nazarenes, meaning the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Others disparagingly called them Christians linking them to Jesus and his humiliating death on a Roman cross. They called themselves, simply, the people of the way. The church grew in relative peace for a few years, till their numbers became too large for the Jewish ruling council, that is the Sanhedrin, to ignore any longer. As the apostles taught about Jesus, they realized that a good part of what the Jews had been told their scriptures meant was wrong. Some of the more bold believers began voicing their criticisms of contemporary Judaism. They ran afoul of the authorities, and so persecution began. When Stephen, young Christian leader, was executed for blasphemy, it sent a shockwave through Jerusalem. It was now clear that Jesus' followers were under an official ban. While the first-generation leaders, known as the apostles, stayed in Jerusalem to tend to the needs of the church— Younger leaders moved to Samaria and Syria, where they founded new communities. Churches sprang up in Damascus, Antioch, Egypt, and other locales. These new communities, while still primarily Jewish in composition, were made up of Jews more acclimated to the Greco-Roman culture of the Mediterranean world than those in Jerusalem. When word reached the mother church in Jerusalem that new fellowships were springing up in other places, The apostles sent delegates to these new communities to establish a connection. One of the representatives they sent out was an elder named Barnabas. He visited the church in the Syrian capital of Antioch, which at that time was the third largest city of the Roman Empire, with a population of about a half million. The church there was something new, a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. It was at Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians, The readiness of Jewish believers at Antioch to welcome Gentiles into their fold shifted the focus of missionary activity from Jerusalem to Antioch. It was at Antioch that one man rose to leadership who would, next to Jesus, have the greatest impact on Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, or as he's more commonly known, Paul. Paul's hometown was the Roman city of Tarsus, capital of Cilicia in what is today south-central Turkey about 20 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. The famous Roman general Pompey the Great had made Tarsus the center of Roman government in that area, granting its residents the treasured Roman citizenship. Tarsus was also a center of Greco-Roman culture. Paul was born to Jewish parents there, making him a unique mixture of Roman, Greek, and Jewish. This all conspired to make him an effective instrument for spreading the gospel. After his early education in Tarsus, Paul moved to finish his training in Jerusalem under the great Jewish scholar Gamaliel. He became a member of the ultra-strict sect known as the Pharisees. Paul finished his training just as the followers of Jesus ran afoul of the authorities in Jerusalem. Whether Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin or merely their agent, it was he who presided at the execution of Stephen, lending those doing the deed their authority. Paul then embarked on a campaign to harass the Christians in the environs of Jerusalem. When the church there was effectively driven underground, he received official permission to carry his campaign of harassment to Damascus, where rumors said that the Christians were thriving. But when Paul finally entered Damascus, it was a very different man from the one who'd set out from Jerusalem a few days before. In a vision of the risen Christ, Paul realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and the gospel he'd been trying to stamp out, wasn't a dangerous heresy. It was the truth of God. When he returned to Jerusalem, the leaders of the church were wary of him. After all, this was the guy who just ravaged them. But when it became clear that he was a genuine believer, the apostles embraced him. Well, sort of. In reading the book of Acts and a couple of Paul's letters, we're left with the impression that while the core leadership at Jerusalem accepted Paul's conversion as legitimate, they preferred that he'd find another church to attend. That church turned out to be Antioch, where Paul partnered with Barnabas, who became one of the leaders there. This would be a good place to talk a bit about the different perspectives on the nature of the Christian life that developed between Jerusalem and Antioch. Let's call it the difference between first and second generation Christianity. First generation Christianity was thoroughly Jewish in orientation, and it was centered on Jerusalem. Second-generation Christianity was still officially headquartered at Jerusalem with the apostles as their authority, but the focus of activity shifted to urban centers outside of Israel. An increasing number of Gentiles were now being won to the faith. As cultural Jews, first-generation believers continued to cast their faith in Jewish forms. They kept kosher, observed the Sabbath, circumcised their sons... That's a Jewish and not at all Gentile sort of thing. Second-generation believers counted the ritual aspects of the Mosaic Law as having been meant to point to Jesus and had been consummated by him. They felt there was now no need to engage in or observe such rituals any longer. A kosher diet, keeping the Sabbath and circumcision, weren't considered essential practices to follow Jesus. What made things messy is that there was a protracted period of tension as first-generation Christians contended with second-geners over the expected lifestyle of Jesus' followers. Even though Acts chapter 15 sees the leadership of the church in Jerusalem deciding the matter in favor of the second-generation position, die-hard first-generation advocates continued to promote the idea that if believers wanted to have a God-approved lifestyle, well, they had to adhere to the Mosaic law whether Jew or Gentile. These Judaizers, as they were called, proved to be one of the Apostle Paul's biggest trials. They dogged his steps, infiltrating churches that he'd planted after he left, claiming that they were there to, well, complete what Paul had only begun. They sought to turn Paul's converts to Jesus, to Moses. Some of Paul's letters are eloquent and at times scathing rebuttals to the problems that were introduced by these Judaizers. The debate between first and second generation believers didn't end with the early church. It endures to this day. Modern day Judaizers, known as legalists, insist on a set of behavioral guidelines as necessary to demonstrate genuine faith. Whether it be dress, diet, or devotion, a certain level of giving, service, or submission, rules are set up to prescribe the acceptable lifestyle. Such legalists see the preaching grace as dangerous a license to excuse sin but the grace that's described in the new testament is no license to sin for paul and those second generation christians who carried the gospel throughout the mediterranean world if someone genuinely believed in christ they'd been born again and would demonstrate a new life commensurate with the life and the teaching of christ the person who truly loves god can do as he and she chooses because he and she chooses to love God. That wraps up this episode. As we close, if you subscribe to Communio Sanctorum via a podcast portal like iTunes or Podbeam, head on over to sanctorum.us and check out the CS website. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.